From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. What follows is the recent Shannon Luminary Lecture from Dr. Benjamin Ebert, the co-director of the cancer program at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, chair of medical oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and a hematologist-oncologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. The talk is entitled The Future of Cancer Prevention. And if you haven't already, please check out our prior episode, number 14, for some background and insight into this exciting talk. The next voice you hear will be that of Marcus Weldon, president of Bell Labs and CTO of Nokia. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's great to, uh, to be hosting another Shannon Luminary Lecture. I think this one is going to beat all previous ones, with the exception of Stephen Fry, because it was unbeatable. <laughs> so, Ben, I'm just lowering the bar for you. Uh, so people often ask uh, how we came to select the speakers, and uh, no one will be surprised when I tell them it was arbitrary. Uh, I'd like to think there was a sophisticated voting system, but normally uh, we have a sense of something we want to hear about. And in this particular case, it's both arbitrary and nepotistic, uh, because I've known Ben for uh, roughly 20 years. Uh, and I was always jealous, actually, of Ben, and, and uh, he would never come and visit. And so I decided I would uh, offer him a prize if he would come and visit. That's somewhat true, uh, but anyway. <laughs> So, uh, somewhat true, yeah. So uh, my wife went to college in full disclosure with Ben. They went to Williams College. Uh, I have been to his wedding. He came to my wedding. So there is an element of nepotism there. But let's set that aside until you've seen his talk. Because if his talk's good enough, you'll forget that part. Uh, but no, so Ben is a brilliant guy. Um, he, he was at Williams as an undergraduate, then a Rhodes Scholar uh, doing a PhD at Oxford, reasonable university. Uh, then... <laughs> Then uh, back to Harvard, not so bad either. Uh, in fact, some would say uh, the best go there. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and then uh, involved with MIT in some way. And so, but I decided I would actually read you how many uh, institutions he's currently affiliated with. Because I like to think uh, I have two jobs, right? I'm CTO and I run Bell Labs. So I thought that, that sounds clever, but it's not as clever as this. So he's currently co-director, and I had to write it down because medics uh, and... Uh, and the medical profession loves long titles. Co-director of the cancer program at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. It's pretty good. Professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. That one's actually rather short and not so impressive. Uh, <laughs> chair of medical oncology at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And that's uh, fantastically impressive. Hematologist and oncologist. It sounds like he part-time he's a hematologist, uh, oncologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and he's still got a linkage back to the Broad Institute, which is a collaborative institute between Harvard and MIT. So that is not bad at all. Uh, so I'm delighted to have him here. I, will, uh, I always like to reveal a couple of personal things about the speaker that even they don't know. Um, there is a, uh, going back to the wedding thing, so I did go to Ben's wedding, he's married to an English woman, lovely English woman, so we're sort of the inverse couple, uh, I'm married to an American, he's married to an English woman, uh, it's actually at a lovely estate, you know, imagine an English stately home, uh, that is where she grew up, uh, and that's where the wedding was, so it's very Harry and Meghan Markle, so that's sort of a thing, I want you to think of Ben in, in that context, particularly at this time, uh, he didn't know uh, that, that that's how he should think of himself, but he should. Um, he's also an expert table tennis player. Uh, I have never played him because we were afraid of the consequences. 
uh, because we're both pretty competitive, so it, it could have uh, resulted in some sort of meltdown. Uh, but last, I found out he has one more talent, uh, drone flying. <laughs> he did the drone flying in our uh, gesture control lab and apparently massacred two drones, <laughs> which no one has achieved before. Normally, they do some harm to the drones. You lose a propeller or something, but apparently they are in pieces. So it's a good thing he's not a surgeon. <laughs> so without any further ado, I do genuinely want to uh, welcome Ben. Uh, and I want to welcome the web. Uh, since the last lecture, we're actually live on YouTube and not a private YouTube channel, public YouTube. So everyone say hello to YouTube. <laughs> hello, YouTube. Uh, we also have a moderator back there so the the, the nasty stuff on YouTube doesn't come through, but they actually are able to, uh, to uh, ask questions as well. So uh, without any further ado, over to uh, Professor Dr. Hare, uh, Ben Ebert. Thanks very much. That was quite an introduction. Thank you very much, Marcus. I was already intimidated by meeting with all these uh, amazing individuals here, and uh, speaking after Marcus makes it even worse, and obviously speaking after Stephen Friend makes it uh, completely impossible, so all attempts at humor are done now. So thank you very much for having me. It has been just a spectacular day here today, uh, hearing the extraordinary work that, that everybody here is doing. Um, and actually, I thought I'd one of the, the points that's been made several times here is that you not only bring in just absolutely brilliant people and let them explore various areas, but there's an extraordinary breadth in the uh, intellectual disciplines and backgrounds of the people here, and that really fosters a lot of the creativity. So I thought I'd tell you just a tiny bit about our environment, which is quite different. I think we also have a very wide breadth of, um, of backgrounds, though almost completely non-overlapping with, with yours, and so hopefully that's the huge opportunity here. So uh, at the Dana-Farber, we're really built half on research and half on clinical care. We obviously take care of patients with cancer, but we have basic science labs, some of the greatest very basic science laboratories in the world. We have people who do translational research, something that relates to the use of human samples to study or um, translating basic uh, findings in the lab to create a drug um, or to understand the genetics of cancer. We have uh, clinicians who are doing cancer research and clinical trials. So we have many, many hundreds of clinical trials open at any one moment, and a large uh, portion of our patients at some point end up on a clinical trial. Um, and then we have uh, pure uh, taking care of patients. And so that brings together a, just a, a, a tremendous breadth of expertise around uh, cancer uh, biology and care uh, that's really worked synergistically and, uh, and, and I think is an opportunity for a number of the technologies we discovered here today. In addition, um, I have uh, part of my lab at the Broad Institute, um, which is over on the MIT campus, but is, Marcus said, a Harvard-MIT uh, collaborative place, and that is the one place that has some of the uh, computational mathematical um, uh, community that, that helps us with some of the, the large-scale data that, that people are generating in cancer now. So I thought I'd spend just a few minutes at the beginning uh, getting you up to speed on part of where cancer, uh, basic cancer research is at this stage. So at the very basic level, cancer is caused by genetic mutations that are somatic, meaning they're acquired during the course of your life, not uh, necessarily at birth. Um, and those mutations have to happen in a particular cellular context. Not any cell in the body can become cancerous. Actually, 
quite a small percentage of cells in the body can become cancerous. It has to be a cell that has the ability to copy itself infinitely, a terminally differentiated skin cell, no matter what you do to it, no matter what mutations are, you put into it, are never going to become cancer. And the vast majority of mutations that you can introduce into a cell don't cause cancer, but a small number of mutations in the right cellular context causes cancer. And it's not just one mutation, it needs to be uh, the sequential acquisition of multiple mutations. So that's the very basic background of what cancer is, and, um, and I'll show you a little bit about how we can understand that now. So here's uh, an example from a paper from uh, one of my colleagues of the Dana-Farber on lymphoma that uh, was just published. And this is a representation of, of cancer genetics that we often use now. So she and her lab looked at um, patients with lymphoma, a particular type of lymphoma called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. They sequenced the whole exome of these patients. Those all the coding sequence makes all the genes. They looked for all the mutations that happen in these uh, cancers. They looked for all the copy number changes, parts of the genome that are copied, have extra copies or are deleted, chromosomal rearrangements, basically all the different types of genetic abnormalities. They found that about every lymphoma had on average 17 mutations that are we consider drivers, actual causative mutations. Um, and they found a total of about 150 mutations that are recurrent in this disease. So they are, we're, we think they're pathogenic. They actually cause the lymphoma. Um, so in these diagrams, every row is an individual gene or genetic abnormality. Every column here is an individual patient. And so when we think about how every cancer patient behaves a little differently, their survival might be differently, their response to therapy might be different, how aggressive the disease might be quite different, this is why it's so heterogeneous. They all have a whole bunch of mutations, but different patients have different combinations of mutations, um, and each of them have um, uh, a whole bunch of different mutations. So every stripe here, every vertical stripe is an individual patient, and there's on average 17 bars representing an individual mutation in any individual patient, and then these are all the uh, mutations that we have to analyze. So on one hand, that's really complicated. On the other hand, it's a pretty finite problem now. This is really recent. So just in the last few years, due to advances in sequencing technology and the ability to sequence the whole genome, we've now sequenced many, many thousands of cases. And we have a parts list now for cancer. We know pretty much all the major driver mutations that cause cancer. We've, there's going to be rare ones that we haven't found, and it'll take years to find every last one, but we have the major drivers of all the major cancers now. Um, and this was from big federal grants that, that funded sequencing of lots of uh, tumors in an unbiased way. So we now have these mutations that cause cancer, and we can now have clinical tests now that we can take the whole genome and narrow it down to the small number of genes that are recurrently mutated, we can analyze those in a clinical setting. So now every patient who walks in the door of the Dana-Farber gets sequenced for the key genes that are mutated. So we know the genes that are mutated in each of the cancer patients that we take care of. We really don't know what to do with most of that data yet, but we're acquiring it. And, and indeed, most of that uh, cost is not paid for by any insurance company because uh, we don't really know how to use that data clinically, but the Dana-Farber has decided that that's an important enough endeavor to fund through philanthropic sources um, uh, the sequencing of patients as they come in. So 
This is what it, these are what real-life cancer patients look like in terms of their genetics, and this type of information we're acquiring now on all of our patients, which means the number of cases uh, is, is growing really, really fast. This is just another representation of the complexity of cancer. This is gene expression, messenger RNA levels, for all genes in the genome, about 20,000 genes, across 10,000 cancers. Uh, this was part of the big sequencing uh, efforts that, that uh, were undertaken. So every cell in our body has the same DNA code, but they are different. So neurons in a muscle cell and a heart cell and a uh, fat cell are all the same DNA, but they turn on and off different genes. We can very efficiently now measure the level of expression of all of those genes. So different cancer types have different levels of expression, and you can use various clustering technologies to uh, put them into bins. So that's just another type of large-scale data that we get, uh, um, uh, at least in the laboratory and in some cases in the clinic. So this was sort of what I wanted to put out there for the um, machine learning experts in your community and the uh, uh, AI experts. We are now getting all these genetic mutations on all of our patients routinely. We also get histology, the pathology samples on all of our patients, kind of by definition, every tumor gets biopsied and looked at under a microscope, but that's now getting digitized. So that's also digital information that can be analyzed, and there's lots of discussion, at least in initial projects and understanding uh, uh, ways of analyzing that through AI. Radiology is now completely digital information. All the um, CT scans, uh, MRIs, PET scans, et cetera, are all digitized. And all of our medical records now are non-paper, are all completely um, electronic. Uh, and so there's an enormous number of hurdles to putting this data together. It's confidential patient information. It needs to be de-identified uh, if it's going to be used in certain ways. Extracting the, even though we paid over a billion dollars for our electronic medical record system, it's uh, very difficult sometimes to extract the information that would be useful. The radiology is a huge amount of data um, uh, and complex. Uh, the, the histology, the pathology slides are still in the process of getting digitized. But still, that substrate is now probably for the first time in history available and ready for really, really large scale. Um, uh, uh, computational analyses. And since this is being done routinely on every cancer patient, the number of uh, cases is going up very fast. So, you know, many, many thousands per year, um, uh, if not tens of thousands, just in, in Boston alone. So that's sort of uh, the opportunity. Um, I'll now talk a little bit about how cancer develops at the earliest stages and, um, and how we might be able to detect it. And, and one of the other principles I wanted to convey was that not only are there a bunch of mutations in every individual cancer, their order of acquisition matters. It, they can't be acquired in a random order. If the mutations that come at the end happen first, the cell usually just dies. It doesn't be, develop a premalignant lesion. Only certain mutations will lead to that initial step uh, of cancer. So this is pancreatic cancer, um, and there are similar types of diagrams for other cancers, but there are, oops, uh, um, there are certain types of mutations that happen early on, certain types of mutations that happen late in the disease, and the uh, morphology, or the shape, or the appearance of the cells, function of the cells uh, changes proportionally. It's not a perfect map. There's not like 
mutation one, then two, then three, then four. It's usually a class of mutations that happen first. Each of those inf- mutations may change the probability of the second mutation occurring because they cooperate in different ways. That changes the probability of the third. But again, with many thousands or tens of thousands of cases, you can start to um, uh, figure out those rules. So my lab is most interested in blood cancer. So here's a very brief introduction to the blood system. It starts with hematopoietic stem cells, has a variety of types of what's called progenitor cells that proliferate, and then we make all the types of blood cells that are in our circulation. It's an absolutely extraordinary system. We make on the order of 200 billion red blood cells per day. If you are trying to grow cells in the laboratory, Growing up, a million or 10 million cells is actually a fair bit of work. 100 million cells is getting a lot of complaints from the postdocs, and more than 100 million cells is forget about it outside of our budget. So the fact that you move 200 billion on a daily basis just within our bone marrow, which is spatially not that huge, um, is extraordinary. We make a similar number of platelets per day and uh, almost as many neutrophils per day. So red blood cells carry oxygen, platelets stop bleeding, neutrophils fight infection. So We need a mechanism to make enormously proliferative cells. These cells are proliferating faster than almost any cancer cell uh, known. And at the same time, keep this little pool of stem cells, maybe 10,000 cells, that we maintain for our our entire lifetime. And even centenarians don't just run out of stem cells. They have maintained this little pool of stem cells Accurately, they could have differentiated, turned into a progenitor cell or a differentiated cell without the capacity to maintain its stemness, um, but, uh, but they don't. And so it's an extremely well-buffered uh, uh, system that, that allows, uh, uh, allows it to ma- be maintained for so long. It would seem that this is an absolutely ideal setting for the development of cancer, cells that are true stem cells that, that can have the capacity to self-renew and uh, infinitely, which is exactly the type of cells that get mutation, and the incredible uh, proliferative capacity um, of these progenitor cells. This system has enough checks and balances that actually leukemia is relatively rare compared to some types of cancer, uh, but still uh, an important and challenging medical problem. But for cancer, that little pool of cells is really the initiation of, of most uh, leukemias. Those That tiny, even though there are hundreds of billions of cells in the hematopoietic system at any one moment, only that little pool is the one that can actually get the mutations that can persist. If you get a mutation in a neutrophil, the neutrophil only lives for 24 hours and it dies. doesn't matter what mutation you put in it, it's going to die no matter what. A stem cell will stay alive and make copies of itself, propagate that mutation infinitely, and those are the mutations that are most concerning. So how does this process happen? We, if these are our stem cells in a, in a vertical line here, one of those cells might get a mutation that's the first step on the way to getting cancer, and that might lead to a clonal expansion. That one stem cell may give rise to many other stem cells, all bearing that same initiating mutation. And after a while, that one of those cells might get a second mutation, and that accumulates over time, and then one might get a third or a fourth, And in leukemia, it's a relatively simple disease. There might be only three, four, five mutations in an individual leukemia. But it highlights also the complexity of cancer in that all of those previous clones still exist. So you've got 
cells here with four mutations, three mutations, two mutations, one mutation, zero mutations, all coexisting in the bone marrow. And it raises a question a little bit of what do you call a remission? Is it only when you get rid of the cell with the four mutations? Do you have to get rid of all of the cells back to that first mutation? Um, uh, and uh, different cell populations, different clones may have different sensitivities to therapy. But one of the questions we wondered was, if there's an initial mutation that leads to a clonal expansion, maybe that's way more common than full-blown leukemia. Just like polyps in the colon are far more common than full-blown colon cancer. So we set about trying to find that early stage, that pre-malignant stage. So that created a, a challenge for us. If we're studying cancer, it's straightforward what samples we study. We find the patients with that kind of cancer. We get samples from the surgeons or from the clinicians who are taking care of that, and we do our genetic analyses and characterize them. Here we want to study uh, people before they get any malignancy, and so we needed to look at the general population, and that's really expensive to, to go after many, many, many samples. What we realized is that, uh, to our advantage, Whenever people do sequencing studies for inherited predisposition to a disease, they always sequence blood. So whenever somebody's signing up for a, a genetic study, they get a blood draw. That's the easiest, most accessible source of, of uh, DNA for, for various genetic studies. So um, when we first started out on this, we were able to collaborate with uh, a geneticist at the Broad Institute just as sequencing was really taking off. And he had about 17,000 exomes completed on peripheral blood. By now, we've looked at more than 60,000, and, and, and really hundreds of thousands have been analyzed uh, now, uh, even just at the Broad Institute alone. So uh, we were able to access uh, what would have cost um, uh, maybe two orders of magnitude more than my lab budget or three orders of magnitude more than my lab budget, uh, by uh, accessing existing data from peripheral blood. Now, those people who did the sequencing studies were looking for inherited predisposition to diseases. We were looking for acquired somatic mutations, cancer-causing mutations that happen after birth. And uh, so what we found... Uh, was a bit surprising to us. And younger individuals, which here I'll mean uh, under age 40, we almost never found a cancer-causing mutation in the peripheral blood. But by the age of 70, over 10% of everybody had a mutation that was in their peripheral blood, in their circulating blood, that was uh, a mutation that we find in acute myeloid leukemia, which is a very aggressive, very difficult to treat leukemia. We knew that uh, acute leukemia generally, caught, uh, at least in adults, generally requires multiple mutations, and these might only be an initial mutation, but still 10% of everybody having a mutation seemed uh, extraordinary. And these are really big clones, on average encompassing 20% of all the circulating blood cells. So it's not just like a little tiny clone that you wouldn't have known about. It's, it's actually quite a large fraction of all the blood cells that uh, have this initial leukemia-associated uh, leukemia mutation. As I mentioned, we thought about this as a pre-malignant state, and if we look at leukemia samples, almost all of them would have three, four, five, or more mutations. In this case, almost everybody had only a single mutation, uh, and out of the initial 17,000, only a few had three or four mutations. So this is really only the initial mutation leading to um, a blood cancer, not, uh, not a full-blown blood cancer. And if you... Uh, if we think about this as a pre-malignant state, is the very first step on the way to getting a full-blown malignancy, you might think that people with a mutation in their blood 
would more likely go on to get a blood cancer, and that is exactly what we saw. So people are with a mutation are shown in red here. This is the probability of getting a blood cancer. It was about tenfold higher than people who didn't have a mutation in their peripheral blood. So if we can detect a leukemia-causing mutation in the blood, that increases the rate of that uh, risk of that person going on to get a blood cancer by about tenfold. Those with a larger clone had about a 50-fold increased risk. On the other hand, leukemia is still quite rare, and only about 4% of people got uh, a blood cancer over the subsequent years. So we were not at the stage, in fact, when we were giving press interviews about this, we were very careful not to say everybody should go out and get checked for these mutations because we don't have any way of preventing cancer yet in these individuals, and the absolute risk still is, is fairly low. One of the really fun parts about this story is that right after we did this, an enormous number of groups came up with very similar findings from very, very different methods, different computational methods, different uh, set of samples, different uh, sequencing approaches. All of them found the same genes to be mutated, the same age association, the same risk of developing a hematologic malignancy, um, or same risk of getting a blood cancer, um, and now there's uh, dozens of papers on this. So um, in, uh, in biology, perhaps even more than in, in the work that you do, uh, replication is so important because these studies are really hard, and the fact that, um, uh, that a number of groups came up with similar findings helped this become a really robust field uh, very rapidly. We actually took our first shot at defining this as a syndrome because um, uh, what was happening was uh, people were detecting a mutation in the blood and thinking these individuals actually have a blood cancer. We wanted to make sure that it was clear that this was not a mature malignancy. It was actually a pre-malignancy, and, uh, and so we called it CHIP um, and, uh, and, and set out the first set of uh, diagnostic criteria for this disease. And quite similar to other pre-malignant states where the odds of progressing uh, to a full-blown malignancy was about 0.5 to 1% per year, and so we at least have a, a group of individuals now who are at relatively high risk of developing a cancer, and we can start to think about how we might prevent cancer in that group. So uh, one other question is whether uh, if you have a pre-malignant state, is the only risk to that individual getting cancer, or could a pre-malignant state actually cause um, uh, other consequences that are uh, clinically relevant? And the reason for thinking that is when we looked at our large set of patients uh, or individuals that didn't have a disease, um, and they had a mutation in their blood that was indicative of a pre-malignant state, so they had one of these leukemia-causing mutations in their blood, um, did they have a different life expectancy? And we found that they did. They had about a 40% increased risk of dying of all causes if you had a mutation in the blood compared to those who don't. And leukemia is still too rare a disease to shift overall mortality, the overall risk of dying. By 40%, that's actually a pretty big shift at a population level. So what could be causing this? First idea was if you had a mutation in your blood, maybe you have mutations elsewhere in your body and you're going to die of cancer more likely, have a greater risk of cancer. That turned out not to be the case. The risk of, of, uh, of cancer death was the same. Much to our surprise, uh, we found that those individuals who had a mutation in their peripheral blood had a higher risk of dying of cardiovascular disease than uh, those without a mutation in their blood. Um, and, uh, and it was a, actually a quite a large effect size. This is a, called a hazard ratio of, of about two. It's about doubling the risk of heart disease. 
that's actually a bigger effect than many of the traditional risk factors. In this data set and in similar data sets, the increased risk of developing a heart attack in those with high blood pressure or high cholesterol levels was about 1.4, 1.6 for those, both of those risk factors. So having one of these mutations in the blood is actually a bigger risk factor than high cholesterol, which was very much not expected. One possibility there is that this is just, uh, you know, a statistical fluke. We, uh, we were looking around for a cause of, um, uh, of increased mortality. We got around that by replicating this in subsequent, in the last few years, we've replicated this in four additional very large cohorts with uh, each of them with many, many thousands of cases. Um, and it held up almost exactly the same with a hazard ratio of, a, of about doubling the risk of heart disease in those with a... Um, uh, a mutation in their peripheral blood. And so that kind of raises two large possibilities. One is that having mutation in the blood is age-associated. I showed that the older you are, the more likely you are to have one of these mutations in the blood, and therefore you're more likely to get a disease of aging like cardiovascular disease. They didn't get other diseases of aging like cancer, so that seemed a little less likely, but still a possibility. And the other reason is that having a mutation in the blood directly causes atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. And the reason for thinking that is that atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease is actually largely mediated by blood cells. There are monocytes and macrophages that create this plaque, neutrophils, platelets that, that create the, the clot that causes a heart attack. So blood cells actually cause um, cardiovascular disease, and it's possible that mutations in those blood cells um, are mediating that. And so uh, the way we go about proving these types of things in the laboratory is with a, uh, a mouse model because you can't recapitulate all the steps of cardiovascular disease uh, in, a, in a tissue culture dish. It also turns out that normal wild type, uh, normal mice don't ever get atherosclerosis. They have extremely healthy eating habits. They run around. They, uh, and uh, at least within the um, half-life of a, a postdoctoral fellow in the lab, none of them will get um, <laughs> heart disease. So um, we use a model where they have the LDL receptor. That's the receptor for cholesterol knocked out. That's actually the cause of a familial um, hypercholesterolemia and, and a, a high-risk, uh, inherited risk of, of cardiovascular disease. So it's a mouse model that is very prone to cardiovascular disease, and we feed them uh, what's a Western diet, which is extremely high in cholesterol. <laughs> and the experiment that we did is we all only changed the blood cells in these mice. So we do a bone marrow transplant, tra transplant the bone marrow cells, which make all the blood cells, that either have a mutation in them or don't have a mutation in them. So there are mice that are prone to cardiovascular disease at baseline. We just vary the genotype or the mutation in their peripheral blood and look at whether that uh, alters the risk of developing uh, atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. And they did. So this is the aortic root. These are the leaflets of the aortic valve uh, the, um, uh, leading out of the heart. It's an area where atherosclerosis can occur. And in mice with normal uh, blood cells, five weeks after the transplant, they have just a little bit of atherosclerosis. But in those with mutant blood cells, they get a lot more atherosclerosis around the leaflets here. And at nine weeks, this is with a different stain, there's a little bit more atherosclerosis here, but even more atherosclerosis in these lesions uh, here. So 
just changing the mutation in the blood cells was enough to develop uh, accelerated atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease in this mouse model. We did this in many, many mice at many time points, and uh, and these results uh, held up. This is the descending aorta. So after the uh, blood leaves the heart into the aorta, there's uh, out of the heart it goes into the aorta and uh, goes uh, down our chest and abdomen. Uh, and uh, and you can look inside it and stain for the uh, for the atherosclerosis. And in mice with normal blood cells, you just get a little bit of atherosclerosis. And in those with mutant blood cells, you see a lot more atherosclerosis. So in a controlled experimental environment, we can show that just having a mutation in these blood cells uh, leads to um, accelerated cardiovascular disease in this model, indicating that this is a bona fide causal um, um, uh, cause of, um, of cardiovascular disease. So we're just at the beginning of figuring out why, uh, and we started by looking at what genes are turned on and turned off in mice with these mutations. And, uh, and what we found was a bunch of these uh, genes shown in red were turned on in the mutant cells compared to the normal cells, and many of those genes are genes that have already been implicated in cardiovascular disease. They encode... Um, uh, Hormones or cytokines, they're called inflammatory cytokines. They lead to inflammation, and inflammation is intimately linked to the development of atherosclerosis. And in fact, one of these uh, cytokines called interleukin-1-beta here is targeted by a drug. And just as right after we published our study uh, with this finding, Novartis uh, published the results of a 10,000-person randomized controlled clinical trial targeting interleukin-1-beta, showing that patients who were tar- had uh, inhibition of interleukin-1-beta had decreased risks of, of heart disease and decreased uh, mortality. So there's a lot of convergence now that these mutations in the peripheral blood may turn on mediators that cause atherosclerosis, and we actually have therapeutic interventions that can prevent atherosclerosis. But taking a step back, this also just demonstrates that this uh, pre-malignant state that increases the risk of getting a blood cancer, may cause far more morbidity and mortality, far more deaths, far more disease um, from a uh, non-malignant consequence than than from a malignant consequence. So uh, it raises the question that many phenotypes or many aspects of aging may actually be related to pre-malignant states. And if we could identify those pre-malignant states, we might be able to intervene on multiple aspects of aging. So we looked at what other clinical consequences of understanding um, uh, this pre-malignant state that we call CHIP uh, might be. One of those consequences is called uh, is a therapy-related myeloid malignancy or therapy-related leukemia. So patients who get cancer often get chemotherapy, and one of the most feared long-term consequences of chemotherapy is developing a leukemia down the road. And that happens at a, a different frequency for different diseases, but um, those therapy-related leukemias, leukemias that occurred in somebody who got chemotherapy earlier, are very aggressive diseases, difficult to treat, and have a high mortality. So could we find those individuals who already have a pre-malignant state in their blood, who when they get chemotherapy for whatever tumor, this is almost entirely in adults and not in children who don't have these mutations in their blood, but in a a 70-year-old who comes in with breast cancer who's going to get chemotherapy, 
if they have a mutation already in their blood, could we predict that they're at risk of getting a therapy-related malignancy and maybe we would uh, change uh, how we treat them in some way? So our first uh, way of addressing this question um, is, uh, is to take lymphoma patients who undergo a procedure called an autologous uh, stem cell transplant or an autologous bone marrow transplant. That's a procedure where we treat, we take um, uh, uh, some uh, patient's bone marrow and save it, treat that individual with extremely high doses of chemotherapy that would be otherwise lethal, and then give them their own bone marrow back to rescue their blood system. And that's actually a reasonably common procedure. So over the course of seven or eight years at the Dana-Farber, we transplanted 400 patients for this particular syndrome of, of lymphoma um, uh, who need an autologous stem cell transplant. And the reason we predict this particular disease state was about seven or eight percent of these individuals go on to get a therapy-related leukemia, which is a pretty significant cause of their mortality. And so could we predict which of these individuals are going to go on to get a therapy-related leukemia? And it turned out that we could. So if they, an individual had CHIP or had a mutation in their peripheral blood before their transplant, they had a higher risk of getting a therapy-related leukemia later on compared to those who didn't have a mutation in their peripheral blood. And not only that, those individuals who had a mutation in their blood had a worse overall survival, and that was due both because they developed a therapy-related leukemia, but also because they died of um, heart disease at a higher rate. So again, having this pre-malignant state is predictive both of the development of a cancer, of, of getting uh, a leukemia, and also the development of a non-malignant phenotype, cardiovascular disease, leading to a change in their survival. And uh, these are uh, individuals who may have therapeutic options, and we might be able to choose uh, alternative options for these therapy that, that, that decrease their risk. And also, I think, wanted to, wanted to illustrate the type of research that we do. It involves clinical scenarios, access to patient samples, genetic or other kinds of analysis of patient samples, but then also laboratory studies on the basic biology of that and, uh, and animal models when we need them to uh, understand what's going on. So those are the types of studies that, that we do uh, in our environment. Um, so one of the uh, other questions is whether uh, pre-malignant lesions uh, can persist uh, following the successful treatment of an advanced malignancy. So uh, every patient who comes in now, again, to the Dana-Farber uh, with leukemia gets all their mutations sequenced. So we, and we actually have a, what we think of as a rapid turnaround now, about three days after they come in, we get all these genetic results, which is a shortening from uh, two or four weeks which used to be the case. Hopefully, technological development will, will make that even faster. But we get a clinical-grade test of all of the mutations in a leukemia in every patient who comes in now. And so this is a patient who presented with leukemia. These are the mutations that we found. And we can deconstruct or uh, engineer what order the mutations in was occurred in based on the size, the number of uh, reads with the mutation, or basically the size of the clone. So we could figure out that this patient first got a mutation in this gene DNMP3A, then got a second gene in the other allele. There's two alleles of every gene in the genome. So got two mutations in DNMP3A, then got three more mutations in IDH1, KIT, and Sybil, and presented with this acute myeloid leukemia. 
This individual then got induction chemotherapy, as we do for uh, acute myeloid leukemia, and they went into a complete remission. So the leukemia cells were all gone. We couldn't see them in the bone marrow. Normal blood cells came back. They looked, there was no change in their appearance. They looked like they were completely fine. But now we're sequencing that later time point as well, the complete remission sample. And we find that these initial mutations that occurred first are still there. And they're there in 25 to 30% of all the blood cells. It's not like it's a tiny, tiny remission. And in, uh, in childhood leukemia, we can look for one in 10,000 cells or less, and that's predictive of a relapse. Here, we're not talking about 0.001% of cells. We're talking about 30% of the cells are mutant, but only mutant for the initial mutations, and the subsequent mutations are gone. And so one of the big projects now is to figure out what to do with these patients. Some of the initial mutations, if they're still present, look like they have um, increased the risk of relapse, some less so. Uh, but whether these patients need to undergo a bone marrow transplant, whether they need further therapy, whether they need different monitoring is uh, an area of very active research now. So is this all limited to the blood system? Blood system, as I mentioned, has a lot of advantages. We are able to access massive amounts of sequencing data without um, uh, any, uh, doing any sequencing ourselves, just uh, analyzing the data. The only uh, study that's done this with, with quite the same uh, precision is in skin. And this was a very clever uh, study that was done by uh, scientists in, in Cambridge in the UK. They took slivers of skin from under the eyelid. It's called a blepharoplasty. It's a cosmetic procedure that people get when they're older who have a little bit of sagging skin there and just want to have it removed by a plastic surgeon. So it's a tiny little crescent of skin. Um, and so their question is, that's also a sun-exposed area, so might have been exposed to the mutagenesis of, of uh, decades of, of sunlight. If you sequence the whole thing, you actually generally see no mutations because any mutation that occurs in a, in a small number of cells would be washed out over the sea of the large number of cells that are being sequenced. So they took this small sliver of skin, chopped it up into little pieces, and then took hundreds and hundreds of tiny biopsies out of that and sequenced those. And when they did that, they could actually see evidence of cancer-causing mutations that were quite frequent in a small number of cells. So in the blood system, if you get one mutation, that spreads and spreads and spreads through the whole blood system because there's no spatial constraint on its expansion. In the skin, if you get a mutation, it can expand a little bit, but then it runs up against spatial constraints. It can't keep expanding until it becomes fully malignant. And what they found is there were little clones of cells bearing these cancer-causing mutations that were very prevalent in the skin, almost to the extent that these, in these older individuals, the skin is almost a lawn of pre-malignant lesions. So just like our blood pre-malignant state is far more common than we expected, the pre-malignant state in the skin is also probably far more uh, prevalent and may even be related to the appearance of the skin in, with age. You've got all these tiny little expansions of, of pre-malignant cells that looks very different from a baby's skin. Maybe that's at least in part due to uh, these pre-malignant states. So, uh, there is a great likelihood, I think, that other organs are going to have the same effect. The, certainly the lungs of smokers, um, our esophagus that's exposed to a lot of uh, mutagens, um, may also have loads and loads of pre-malignant uh, cells. And, uh, and if we can develop ways of 
decreasing those clones, uh, uh, minimizing the likelihood of them progressing, detecting the ones that are most likely to lead to cancer, we might be able to uh, uh, prevent more malignancies. So uh, that brings me to the next topic of, you know, what, if this is, uh, these are pre-malignant states, uh, how are we gonna detect uh, full-blown malignancies earlier? We, we know that a lot of our really major progress in decreasing uh, cancer deaths has really come from prevention. Certainly, keeping people from smoking is as big as any, but we've had uh, massive decreases in, um, uh, in cancers where we could do early detection in some cases. So cervical cancer used to be highly lethal. Now, huge percentage, the vast majority of cervical cancer is prevented through pap smears. Now, through uh, vaccination for human papillomavirus, we can prevent even more. Um, and so that's now becoming done uh, population-wide to prevent cervical cancer. So that's becoming a cancer that used to be a significant cause of mortality uh, that is being largely eliminated. Colon cancer, colonoscopies really work. Um, they're not done as universally and they're not, not something that people are uh, always eager to do. But uh, they have the advantage both of detecting the early lesion and removing it. So the reason that a colonoscopy is, is preferable in some ways to an imaging approach is that they actually remove the entire polyp, the entire premalignant lesion, and that clearly in large clinical trials prevents uh, a huge percentage of colon cancer. Certainly, lesions can be missed. We don't do colon, colonoscopies every year, thank God. Uh, but, uh, so there may be some that happen between colonoscopies, but we, we can prevent a lot of them. So there are a few home runs of, of cancer prevention that we've got. Um, wh what are some of the other things that can be done? So it's possible in the blood system that if you have an initial lesion, that you might be able to treat it and make it go away. In the blood, we, there's no surgical approach we can do. The cells are everywhere in the body. There's nothing we can remove to take away that lesion. One disease that's, that's kind of on the border of a pre-malignant and a malignant state is a disease called chronic myelogenous leukemia, or CML. This is the poster child for all of modern oncology. Um, a, it's caused by a particular translocation, bringing one part of chromosome 9 with one part of chromosome 22, stitching together and creating a powerful gene that leads to uh, this cancer in the blood. And that particular lesion can be targeted by a drug. A small molecule can be taken orally, and it is enormously effective. So uh, this is from one of the clinical trials. This is 100% survival. People who have a good response to the drug, essentially 100% survival. Those who have a little bit less than three log kills, so they're still getting 1,999 out of 1,000 cells killed, um, do a little bit less well, but it's still 85, 90%, and we have other drugs that target this that rescue uh, uh, most of those cases as well. So this is, this was, these clinical trials were coming out uh, right as I was finishing my uh, training as a hematologist, oncologist, and it was kind of absolutely thrilling that, you know, you could give an oral drug to a patient and a cancer would essentially go away, and is everything going to be like this? We thought that, you know, given another five years, we're going to have pills for every disease and cancer is going to be uh, completely transformed. That obviously hasn't happened. And one of the reasons is uh, what we've been talking about. This is a cancer caused by one mutation. Very, very simple. Occasionally uh, one or two others, but usually one, one dominant mutation and the drug can make it better. 
In the case of uh, the lymphoma cases I was showing, there's 17 mutations that are very complicated genetically, and if you target any one of those, you might not, not cure the whole cancer. Um, so at least in some cases, though, a simple malignancy caught early uh, with only uh, an initial mutation um, has the potential to be uh, treated effectively with a drug, or if not cured. So uh, is, are there opportunities for detection of precancerous lesions or early-stage malignancies uh, um, in other cases? And is early detection always good? So here's the uh, cautionary tale for early detection. Um, and this is relevant, I think, to, to many of the things going on here. You can detect things going on in the bodies of many people that might be increasing the risk of, of a disease. What matters is, do you change their long-term outcome? Do you change their survival? Do you change their therapy in a way that makes them live longer or, or healthier? So in South Korea, a um, uh, uh, couple of decades in, in the 1990s, they had a change in policy to uh, allow thyroid um, screening by ultrasound for thyroid cancer. And it was just an add-on test. You pay another 30 bucks and we'll tell you whether you have a thyroid cancer. It sounded pretty good. It wasn't that much money huge percentage of the people said, yes, that sounds like a great idea. I'll, I'll get screened for thyroid cancer. That caused an epidemic of thyroid cancer, a 15-fold increase in the number of cases in South Korea of thyroid cancer. So lots and lots of cancers were detected. However, the mortality from thyroid cancer didn't change at all. So they detected lots and lots of cancers that either were never going to be clinically problematic, they were just going to be a little nodule that stayed there for the rest of the person's life and would never have caused any problem, or became a bigger cancer that was effectively treated and knowing earlier didn't help. So the cautionary tale is that early detection isn't by definition a good thing. These patients uh, ended up having surgery, and they had their thyroid removed, and they, then they ended up being hypothyroid and having to take thyroid pills for the rest of their life. It can be pretty miserable. Uh, they had risks from their surgery that could affect their vocal cords. There was a significant complication rate uh, from the surgery itself. So uh, there's actual harm done by the, by the large uh, number of increased cases, as well as the, uh, all of those patients or all those individuals being told that they have thyroid cancer and that you know, they have a malignancy and they need to have surgery and they need to get medicines for the rest of their life. So um, that's a big deal. So early detection isn't a universal good, um, uh, but uh, in certain cases, like in colonoscopies and colon cancer and in, in pap smears and cervical cancer, it, it can be uh, enormously uh, uh, life-saving. So, so one of the frontiers that uh, has attracted a great deal of interest is what's called a liquid biopsy. So if these are cancer cells, they may give off either DNA or RNA or other uh, cellular material into the circulation. Those cells may die and release their DNA and RNA and other material into the circulation, or they can go through other types of cell death. And here's your cancer lesion, and the, these um, either whole cells or bits of cells or DNA are going into the circulation. And so the question is, in our bloodstream, are there little snippets of DNA with mutations that could be detected in the, uh, in the blood that, um, that indicate that that individual has a cancer hiding somewhere in their body or a premalignant lesion hiding somewhere in their body. 
This is a, a, a big field. Companies been founded around this. Uh, one called Grail has been funded at about a billion dollars to try to do this. So it's a significant effort now going into this uh, area, and, uh, and many are investigating it. It's still a very, very open question whether those um, whether a small cancer that is too early to detect by traditional methods is going to give off enough DNA to be detected early and whether those, that early detection would actually change outcomes for patients. But one circumstance that looks quite promising is in patients who already had a cancer and have gone into remission. So they've gotten their therapy. The cancer has gone away, at least by radiography, by CT scan or MRI. We can't see the cancer anymore. But we know already what mutations that patient had because we sequence uh, uh, our tumors now. So if this is the time that a patient started treatment for uh, uh, lung cancer um, and they, the tumor got smaller and smaller over time, that mutation might have, uh, or colon cancer or whatever, uh, that mutation might have actually gone away even faster than the tumor itself in the blood. But in any case, the tumor got small or went uh, below the level of detection by radiography. The mutations went, went away. But maybe either those the mutations that were already there or new mutations might come back, and those mutations might come back well before that cancer can be detected by a CAT scan. So that's uh, a circumstance that looks very promising, that in an individual who already had a solid tumor, we might detect, uh, or even actually a liquid tumor, uh, like a leukemia, we might be able to detect a recurrence faster by uh, mutations in their bloodstream than we would otherwise. Whether we can take the general population and predict who's going to get cancer is a much, much harder problem an extremely important one, and we all hope it will work, um, but at least detecting relapses faster is, uh, is very much on the horizon. Another clever idea, and there's a bunch of these types of clever ideas, people who have a syndrome called Barrett's esophagus. Barrett's esophagus is a pre-malignant state for esophageal cancer. So uh, individuals who have uh, Barrett's esophagus have a high rate of, of getting um, uh, esophageal cancer over time. They often are monitored by endoscopy, looking with a camera, uh, uh, taking little biopsies. One approach is to, to use a little sponge that's swallowed into the stomach and then pulled up through the esophagus. It picks up cells on the way out, and, uh, and those cells can be analyzed. And we know what mutations are actually the really dangerous ones, particularly a, a, a gene called p53, when it's mutated, creates a very dangerous uh, uh, um, malignancy that's much more likely to progress. And so if you can detect um, uh, the p53 mutations, they're much more likely to go on to get um, uh, esophageal cancer. So that's one poss another possibility for that particular kind of cancer where uh, individuals, we, we already know that those individuals are at, at increased risk. And I think in general, uh, cancer screening will be married to uh, underlying predisposition. Some patients may have a uh, inherited predisposition to a type of malignancy. Some patients may have uh, uh, an, a, an acquired uh, predisposition due to a pre-malignant state. Those individuals that are much higher rate of progressing to an, uh, a full-blown malignancy are the ones that will try hardest to find the malignancies when they occur because uh, they're much more likely to change outcomes. 
So uh, those were the sort of points that I wanted to get across about pre-malignant lesions and early diagnosis of cancer, that uh, we are rapidly defining pre-malignant states. We now understand the blood pre-malignant state, some of the skin pre-malignant states, and we're rapidly trying to understand pre-malignant states and all of our other organs, that um, some uh, pre-malignant states can be uh, cured by being removed or treated with a drug. Screening can lead to cancer prevention, but also to overdiagnosis that is not helpful. And uh, pre-malignant states um, are very common. Likely, we all have them, uh, for better or worse. And, uh, and that may contribute to aging more broadly. So I wanted to just take a few minutes now uh, to talk about a slightly different topic, but another f- fun project in my lab that I think also illustrates some similarities and differences to how we do science and how some people here do science. And that's related to um, a drug called thalidomide and its derivatives. Uh, um, And this is a circumstance that we have in medicine, I think, much more commonly, uh, where we have a drug that does something and absolutely no idea why, but it does do something. And so if we could figure it out, we could develop new drugs. So uh, this has been a, something my lab has worked on for a while now. Thalidomide, as you probably all know, was a drug that was developed in, the, uh, in Germany in the 1950s and 40s um, and had antiemetic properties, decreased nausea, and has hypnotic properties, may, makes you sleepy. It was tested in, in rodent models in mice and in rats, and it had no toxicity at all. And so uh, uh, they, they found they thought it was a completely safe drug because they treated rats with tons of the drug, saw no side effects at all. So they thought, we have a wonder drug, no side effects, it decreases nausea, we should use it in the most vulnerable population in pregnant women who have uh, uh, morning sickness and, and decrease their nausea. So it was approved in Europe and in many other countries um, and used to treat uh, morning sickness and pregnancy. Um, and uh, took actually a number of years. It was actually thought to be so safe that it was used over-the-counter in many countries, and, uh, and it took a while to realize that there was increase in these particular bone mar- uh, um, developmental abnormalities called phocomelia, the limb bud defects, where you get shortening of the limbs uh, in these babies, and there was an increased risk of this, uh, increased incidence of this, and, and it took a while to connect it to thalidomide because most people would come in and not mention that they'd taken thalidomide because it's like going to the doctor and saying, yeah, I've been taking Tylenol. You usually don't even mention that because it's, uh, don't even think about it as a drug. But it was ultimately uh, recognized. In the United States, uh, the drug came to the FDA and a brand new pharmacologist named Francis Kelsey got this as her first job and it seemed like a slam dunk, an easy one. It's already been approved in Europe and in Canada and Australia and South America. We just need to rubber stamp it uh, and, uh, and get it approved. Uh, and she said, you know, I don't see any data that says it's actually safe in pregnancy. We should get the data first before approving it. Um, and people got quite upset about that. The pharmaceutical company was losing money by the day. They called her boss, said, you know, what's going on? Just get it approved, we need the money. Um, but she held firm, didn't get approved in the United States until after this, these birth defects were, were recognized. And so in the United States, thalidomide uh, birth defects were extremely rare and only occurred in women who got the drug from uh, Europe um, uh, through other back channels. Um, so the modern FDA, as we know it, is built almost entirely off of the thalidomide catastrophe um, and the biggest award at the FDA every year is the Francis Kelsey Prize for, for her work. 
So the drug was removed from the market, but people still worked with it in the lab because it actually had quite powerful activity in various uh, uh, cell systems. It inhibits a cytokine called TNF-alpha, had some um, anti-angiogenesis activity that's inhibiting the development of blood vessels, so they, people thought that it might be useful for cancer, started a ton of clinical trials in cancer, almost all of which were negative, but it had great activity in one particular disease called multiple myeloma, which is a blood malignancy of, of B cells. So it was actually back on the market, FDA approved for multiple myeloma. And uh, two derivatives of uh, thalidomide called lenalidomide and pomalidomide, which had better activity in some of these uh, cell-based assays, had even better activity in multiple myeloma and uh, were also FDA approved. So now we get to a stage where each of these drugs is making multiple billions of dollars per year with no clue whatsoever how they work. Um, actually, around the corner, um, Celgene, based in Summit, New Jersey, is making the billions. Um, so they, uh, and now a collaborator, so. Um, uh, so they, uh, uh, but you know, that's true of a lot of our, mechani- a lot of our drugs. There, there's quite a few of our most effective drugs that we actually don't fully understand the mechanism of, um, but these uh, anti-cancer drugs in particular. But it's completely the opposite of the way we propose to do cancer research. We say, we're going to understand this mutation completely. We are going to make models of uh, how this mutation causes cancer. And based on that understanding of that mechanism, we are going to design a drug that inhibits that mutation, and we are going to have a new cancer drug. That's the way every biotech is pitched, and the way pharmaceutical companies go about developing drugs. This is a completely backwards way where the drug just worked in patients. We didn't know why, and that led to more clinical trials, more drugs uh, without an understanding. But they did work, and so we spent a long time trying to understand why. And uh, we and others found that the drug, this is with lenalidomide, but thalidomide and others work the same way. (laughs) They uh, change the location so uh, (laughs) they don't line up. So the lenalidomide binds... uh, there, instead of over there. <laughs> uh, and when it's bound, <laughs> it enables those two proteins to interact. And so it's actually uh, an extremely unusual mechanism. Most drugs inhibit an enzyme. This drug actually binds to an enzyme and increases its affinity for a substrate, in, in some ways changing or even increasing the activity of that enzyme and it leads to that protein getting groups called ubiquitin groups added and uh, and degradation. So that's unusual for a few reasons. One is these are drugs that target an enzyme called a ubiquitin ligase. There's about 800 of these enzymes in our cells. These are the first drugs that actually target them. Secondly, most drugs inhibit an enzyme, and as I said, this actually kind of changes the function or increases the function of an enzyme. And third, it's leading to complete degradation and elimination of proteins called transcription factors, which we think of as undruggable. They um, don't have any binding surface that we can develop a drug to, but this is a mechanism for getting rid of them, not inhibiting them, but actually leading to their rapid and complete uh, degradation. So a brand new class of drugs that was worked clinically first and then subsequently could work out its mechanism of action. Um, its specificity is incredible. So one of the other technologies that's been transformative in our world is proteomics. We can look at all the proteins in a cell or in a sample. So 20,000 genes, or yeah, so in a given cell, uh, more than 10,000 proteins are made. Um, 
We could look at all of them in the presence or absence of, of lenalidomide, and out of all of those, only the, the abundance of only a few proteins change significantly, and those are the proteins that have a, a pharmacologic relevance, clinical relevance. We can now have crystal structures of these. We can know exactly how they bind to this protein cerebellum, how they modulate the interaction between these two proteins, leading to their degradation. And that's led to a huge new field that probably almost every pharmaceutical company and many biotechs are working on to modify these molecules or make new molecules that will lead to degradation of new proteins um, as as a new sort of class of drugs. So reverse engineering of active medicines is an extremely effective way of actually understanding uh, how we can develop new medicines, not just um, starting from scratch and understanding biology uh, 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 prospectively. So getting back to this question of, I mentioned at the beginning, lenalidomide had no effect in mouse cells or in rat cells. And uh, we didn't realize that when we started these experiments. We had figured out the mechanism, we thought. We had developed mouse models to prove that the drug works in the way that we thought, that it would work in in the particular models of cancer that uh, lenalidomide has efficacy. We set up big trials. We saw no effect whatsoever, and it was really quite depressing. Then we did a cell culture experiment that you're supposed to do before you do an in vivo experiment, a mouse experiment, and we treated with a drug. This is the protein that's supposed to go away, and we saw no change. That was puzzling because it worked great in human cells. Why would it not work in mouse cells? Then we did what you're supposed to do before you do any experiments, which is to read the literature, which we hadn't done. (laughs) And uh, we found that we couldn't find any papers on these these drugs working in in mouse models. And only through actually uh, going to the library, which... um, uh, we hadn't done, and the graduate students didn't even know where it was. Uh, um, we found that in, historically, that when these drugs were tested, in the, um, uh, with thalidomide was being tested before clinical use, there, there was no uh, toxicity in, in rodent models. But now we understand exactly how the drug works. So we can take uh, um, mouse cells, these mouse leukemia cells, treat them with the drug, and nothing happens. We can take the human cDNA, the gene for the direct target of the drug, express that target in a mouse cell, and when we treat with the drug, this protein goes away. This is called a Western blot, and the protein completely goes away when we treat with the drug. We then can mutate all of the amino acids that are different between mouse and human for this gene and found one residue, one amino acid change that's different between the mouse and the human If you change the mouse gene to the human residue at that one position, put that back into a mouse cell, the drug works. So there's just one amino acid change that happens somewhere in evolution between a mouse and a human that that changed changed the the, uh, effect of the drugs. We could actually, this became a big, this teratogenicity of thalidomide was a really big deal for decades. So these drugs have been tested in every primate model and uh, which animals have the mouse amino acid versus the human amino acid lines up perfectly with which of the animals had uh, toxicity. So um, now we understand that very well. We can actually make a mouse model now where that one amino acid is changed. And in that model where we, oops, knock in the uh, mutation, um, the drug works perfectly. So, um, uh, and then finally, uh, we can, as I mentioned, we can start to to play with this molecule, make 
derivatives of it that will lead to degradation of new substrates and, and, and open up um, uh, new opportunities for, for therapy. So that, that was this last quick story that, that lenalidomide as well as thalidomide and pomalidomide, these, these derivatives of thalidomide, have a unique activity of binding and modulating the function of this enzyme that normally leads to targeted degradation of proteins, uh, leading to degradation of proteins that wouldn't be degraded or eliminated without the drug. And that a single amino acid change in humans compared to mice determines uh, lenalidomide or thalidomide sensitivity. And conceivably, were it not for that amino acid change, which may have just been a random event that happened uh, in evolutionary history, perhaps thalidomide never would have entered clinical use. The thalidomide catastrophe wouldn't have happened. And even possibly, we would never have found it as a, as a useful cancer drug. And uh, this, is, as I'm sure your work, is extremely collaborative. This is my lab. Um, and uh, and uh, as I mentioned, the majority of these people actually are physician scientists. Many have gone to medical school as well, having done a PhD. Um, so a little bit older before they get going than some of you guys. But they uh, um, uh, are uh, wonderful colleagues and, and did all the work that I described. So happy to take any questions. Your you reward is to get to sit with me for a few oh. minutes. Uh, so I'll start, and then we'll, we'll go to the more interesting questions. So, one, for a start, wonderful talk, and I love the way you explain things. It's uh, everything I hoped it would be. Uh, so, a couple of questions. One is, you didn't mention so much about going after that initial mutation, yeah, and whether you could. If you could focus there and modify that, is, is all, do all good things follow from that? Or is it just impossible? That's a great question. We would love to do that. Yeah. That would be the goal. Um, but at least right now, we don't have a good idea how to do it. Those, some of the mutations in cancer cause a gain of function. And those gains of functions are easy to target with a drug. So the example I gave of CML, or chronic myelogenous leukemia, is a brand new function of a protein or it's an activation of a protein, you can inhibit that, the enzyme that's activated and develop a drug that's very effective. The most common mutations, the top most common mutations in, in clonal hematopoiesis, the, the premalignant blood state, are loss of function. So you lose the function of a protein, and there's not an easy way to drug that. So there are ways around that. It's a concept called synthetic lethality. If you lose one thing, you can treat with another oh. drug, but it's not a trivial thing. And so we, we would love to do that. That is absolutely the goal, but we don't have a way of doing that yet. That's a very good explanation. So my related question is, as you saw today, we love the idea of continuous monitoring. Mm -hmm. So is there hope that some new understanding comes from continuous monitoring because you could catch a transition? Yes in vitro, in either physically or chemically or whatever yeah. it is, and say, aha, that I can do something about, even yeah. if it's a, a, a sort of a side uh, attribute. Absolutely. I think that's definitely possible. The, the thing that's occurred to me far more is the other side. Once you've got a lesion that needs treatment, understanding how it's responding, because then you know the moment that you start treatment. We almost never have, just don't have good methods for continuous monitoring of how an individual is responding. So you could tailor exact dosage and treatment. Tailor doses. You could figure out whether the drug is getting into the tumor. You could figure out whether the metabolism changing. Sometimes a tumor might be dying, but the size isn't changing, mm. and so you don't actually know that it's 
responding. Um, so that could tell you early on whether somebody's uh, responding. That could be useful in clinical trials, but it could also be used in, in clinical practice to, to figure out what drugs are effective and what drugs are not effective. Um, and that is would be hugely uh, valuable. Uh, dosing schedules, you know, if you're taking a pill or treating once a day or an intravenous medication that you're taking once a week, is the tumor getting better and then growing again uh, before the next dose? And you would actually like to know that the, that the tumors bounced back in the intervening period. Fascinating. So over to the uh, audience. Don't be shy. There's a not shy over here. Here you are. There's Mark Cardillo over there, I think. Hello. Is there any chance that this gene editing process of CRISPR yes. used in a sequence of mutations can be helpful? Absolutely. So uh, we've actually pioneered some of the work using CRISPR to make, mal- to make cancer models. That's the backwards question I have to ask, you ask. When you use the term model, do you really mean you're building a, a mouse? Um, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes not. So, so we can genetically engineer yeah, mice, yeah. Uh, but often we don't have to engineer the entire mouse. We could just take the cells that become okay. malignant and okay. engineer those cells yeah. and then transplant those into uh, a, a model. So we can use CRISPR gene editing to introduce the mutations that cause cancer. Using gene editing to treat cancer is a much, much more difficult problem because you would have to edit every single cancer cell. Mm. And we don't have a way of delivering the gene editing components to every single cell and delivering them Mm. to 99.9% is no good. We need to deliver to all the cells. And drugs do that pretty well. They get everywhere in the body and, and, and touch all cells. So that's been, I think it's gonna be challenging to use the technology there. One area where they, it is potentially going to be used is an area called immunotherapy and CAR T-cells, where we engineer a patient's own T-cells to fight cancer. So we can take out T-cells from a patient that are clearly not working. They're not clearing the cancer out of the person, otherwise they wouldn't have a malignancy. We can engineer them to be more aggressive in a variety of ways and to target the specific cells. That engineering may well involve the use of CRISPR gene editing, and then those cells get retransfused into the patient, become more effective immune cells, and treat the cancer. And that is an absolutely thrilling and exciting area of uh, cancer research right now. Oh. On the latter point that you made, I understand there is some work at Stanford on putting uh, T cells on steroids to attack uh, cancer. Can you uh, comment on, is that working? Yes. So there are um, a variety of ways of increasing the activity of T cells. Um, uh, one of the classes uh, is called checkpoint blockade. That's a, the, there are checkpoints that prevent overactive T cells. If we had overactive T cells, we'd develop autoimmune disease. But if you remove those checkpoints, they become more active and they can kill cancer cells. In some diseases like melanoma and lung cancer, they are becoming standard of care up front are massively changing the outcome of those diseases. One of the incredibly exciting things about um, checkpoint blockade is, and actually all these immunotherapies, is that in general, when we've developed a new drug for cancer, we shift the survival curve a little bit. The patients live a year longer, six months longer, two years longer, but the outcome's always the same. They, They still die from their disease. With immunotherapy, the immune system's good at killing every last vestige of an infection or of a tumor cell. And so for some of those, the survival curves have a different shape where there's a certain percentage of people who are living a very long time without their disease and and conceivably could be cured that we tend to not use that word. 
perhaps two of the most exciting areas of cancer research have been finding all these mutations and developing targeted therapies against some of the mutations in immunotherapy, uh, either enhancing the activity of T-cells with a drug like checkpoint blockade or engineering T-cells from a patient uh, called CAR T-cells. Those are extremely effective and right at the forefront of cancer research right now. Other questions? Marina. So if you said that the gene sequencing is also useful for other diseases outside of cancer, do you yeah. see this as becoming part of your going to your primary care physician every year and getting yeah. a gene sequencing? Because it, especially for cardiac diseases, they do all kinds of screening now. Yes. Do you see that as becoming commonplace? Yes, absolutely. So um, I think part of our challenge is now still in the interpretation side. So acquiring the data is no problem now. So we can get all the inherited uh, genetic alleles, and we can get all the acquired ones that cause cancer quite readily and increasingly inexpensively, you know, compared to the cost of a CAT scan or something. It's going to be relatively cheap. Um, the challenge is now interpretation because there are so many thousands of mutations that can cause disease. Um, and uh, a poor primary care doctor who needs to be on top of so many things now has to understand all of that. So one thing that we're struggling with just in terms of delivery of care is now um, how do we uh, disseminate that information to patients appropriately, understand the Otherwise risks. it'll be like the Korean study where you just get right. that call saying, you're probably dying. Yes. <laughs> In fact, you're definitely dying. <laughs> You've got cancer. Though, yeah, that's right. You know, one, one uh, brand new area for us, for example, is um, it turns out that probably a much larger percentage of cancer patients than we previously thought have some inherited predisposition of some sort. Doesn't mean it's guaranteed, but they're at higher risk than other people, and that has implications for their family. So should we look for an inherited predisposition into every person who comes into the Dana-Farber and then understand you know, the implications for their family. That's a cost issue, a manpower issue to have the genetic counselors for all of that, but um, something that we're looking at undertaking. So I feel like uh, asking uh, two things then. One is, do we all have predispositions for some cancer? Um, we all certainly have predisposition to some disease. Some disease that and, could, in an environmental situation, right. give rise to a cancer. Yeah, I, I think it's clearly going to be complicated and, and, environment, and influenced by the environment. So, uh, yeah, I would definitely think about it as we would all have slightly different predispositions to different types of cancers. Um, and, and that do, would be do you know the dominant environmental factors? That was the other part of my question about the early mutation. Dominant environment factors for each each one of those mutations. If I can't stop it, can I modify behaviors? I, you know, I have question. a big interest in ALL. Yes. But uh, what what are those factors? Do, do they? It's a great question. So the vast majority of those mutations that we identify are a direct chemical consequences of aging. So there's uh, methylenecytosines can. Uh, get spontaneously deaminated and mutated. That's just a chemical reaction that happens at a defined rate over the decades of our life. So the C to T nucleotide changes that we see are just, age. that's just time. Age. That's just time. So that's the dominant effect. There's a tiny signature of cigarettes, cigarette smoking even in the blood. So there's carcinogens in cigarette mm. that, that cause mutations in blood stem cells. Um, and beyond that, you know, people were looking hard. There aren't major... It's really that. Those are the major things. I would say that... In, in blood cancers in particular. For blood cancers mm. in particular. Uh, I would say that for um, 
and in, in, in childhood cancers is even more just random, but, um, but we don't necessarily have huge cohort studies. We need tens or hundreds of thousands of individuals with all their sequencing, with precise exposure history. It's just very difficult to very generate difficult. that type of data. So there's, there may be other things that go on that, that we don't know about, but it's just hard to acquire that data. Uh, Lowry down here, and then we'll, oh, I know, Barbie, since you were up there and someone's standing right there, you, Barbie. Yes. Hey, I'm not calling you Barbie, <laughs> but ne next, next to Barbie. 3 making gene sequencing affordable to a large number of people, even though it's not using blood sampling. Is there any hope of, of getting some information from that uh, bank of information about, about DNA? Yes, yeah, so the, actually, that's a great question. The reason we were able to access all of that sequencing data was a, a team um, at the Broad Institute led by a, a young guy named Daniel MacArthur who had just the vision that if we could aggregate all of the world's sequencing data, starting with the Broad Institute that had generated a large portion of it, and make it accessible, that people could learn a great deal. And that's what he's done. We have to apply, say this is the study that we want to do, and get permission to use it, show that we're going to be responsible for the data, because even though it's completely de-identified. A genetic sequence of the genome is, by definition, a unique identifier of an individual. Um, and, uh, and that is available to scientists around the world. So um, it's been an extraordinarily useful resource, for example, in identifying um, the cause of extremely rare genetic syndromes. So you find one or two families with a very rare genetic syndrome. You find a candidate mutation, but you don't know if that's causative of that uh, syndrome, and you can uh, improve your prediction of that by looking at 60 or 100,000 cases and show it's never present in the general public, but it is in these particular individuals, and it's more likely because of their disease. So um, it's used very widely, and, um, and, and there's a real culture in human genetics now to make data publicly available. It's often required by some journals and some funding agencies to make the sequencing data publicly available so it can be reanalyzed. And it's also good for um, reproducibility in science because we will analyze data and publish our findings. Somebody else can access the same data, recapitulate our analyses, and if they get a different answer, we're in trouble. <laughs> so I'm going to go to the Finns. As you know, uh, we have Finnish parents, and, and Larry is going to represent our Finnish parents. But in particular, our medical healthcare context is a very interesting population, mm -hmm. I think. So, Larry. Thanks for a great talk. And the uh, lenalidomide case was very interesting. So, how you found different, why it was effective on human, uh, or ba had bad effect on humans, but not on mice. So, and it opened these avenues for new drug discovery. Has it also helped in drug testing? So, does this make it easier, or understanding these cases, does it make it easier to do drug testing and lower the cost of drug testing? Because that's a big effect. Like drug testing for developing new drugs? I mean, for, for, for any malignant or causes or, or yeah. problems with drugs. So does it oh, you mean testing whether they yeah. could cause cancer? Yeah, or, or some other. Yeah, definitely. I, I think understanding the mechanism at least lets you know how to look for the consequences of it. And so we now know that it leads to degradation or loss of particular proteins. So whole new assays have been developed for high-throughput analysis of degrading different proteins. Um, and that's led to both, both sides of that question, uh, uh, developing new drugs that will lead to degradation of new proteins that would be useful for treatment of disease, but also taking 
existing drugs, understanding what the consequences of what proteins are degraded and what their consequences might be and what the toxicities might be. And that's uh, both sides have, have, uh, have occurred due to the mechanism. And back to my Finnish uh, case, what I remember is, because uh, the Finns kept medical yeah. data, and I think if I remember correctly, I had the habit of separating identical twins at some point, thinking that that was better for the upbringing uh, yeah. when, when they lost their parents. So, so uh, there you have different environments, same genetics. Yeah. Uh, any, has anything come out of those oh, sorts of studies? Tons, yeah. yeah. So when people talk about the genetic contributions to various diseases like schizophrenia, they yeah. largely come from these twin studies. Uh, um, we've done a lot, actually, with, uh, as it happens, Swedish cohorts with the same uh, same same reason uh, because the health records are so fantastic. So we had a cohort of 10,000 exomes that had been sequenced we could then go to collaborators in Sweden and look for the ICD-9 codes, the diagnostic codes in their health system and say, mm. did they develop this disease? Uh, and we could say well, those with this mutation developed this particular disease. And wow. there's just no way to do that in a country without a national health service and, and acquisition of that data. So um, that's actually been hugely advantageous. And there's actually a, a very powerful genetic company called Decode Genetics that's based in Iceland that has had the goal of sequencing the Icelandic population and accessing their whole health records. That was a, went through the whole Icelandic parliament. The country decided that they would do this as a country and has led to the identification of many new genes. In fact, they've, they, they did, did a, published a paper on our pre-malignant state as well from their data. And I guess the national health uh, was sort of set up can actually say, Thou shalt make, yes. it, make it available as yeah. opposed to. Uh, I, don't, I think it wasn't an opt in <laughs> situation. Opt-in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, there was a question down here. It's Alan. Thank you. A- excellent talk explaining to, to non Finnishans uh, a, a vast array of detail and still understandable. So fantastic. Excellent. On the cardiovascular link to the, to the pre malignant cells that, that you guys have, have discovered. So when we occasionally listen to our doctors and, and, and eat healthily and do yes. exercise, yeah. are we you listening to the time all the time but because we don't want to offend Ben, yes. but we just don't follow through. <laughs> yeah. Are we affecting the rate of those pre-malignant occurrences yes. or are we slowing down the, the blood chemistry or improving the blood, the blood response to those pre-malignancies? How are we getting the, the end benefit? Yeah, that's a great question. So... We actually don't, for the cardiovascular component of it, we don't have a therapeutic intervention that we've proven yet that um, could decrease the risk of a heart attack in those with the pre-malignant state. Um, and that's the main reason that we've yet to say everybody in the world needs to be analyzed for this pre-malignant state because we need to prove that we would make their outcomes better if we did so, um, other than just increasing diagnoses and scaring people. So um, I think uh, those studies are underway. They're challenging cardiovascular disease because you need a lot of patients to treat to really prove an effect. Our hope is that um, all of the risk factors basically add up in a sum, that you know you have your cholesterol level, your, high blood, your blood pressure, your um, inherited risk, and this inherent and this acquired risk of of a of a pre-malignant state, and they all add up to, in a similar way. And if you're at higher risk, you take 
the therapies that decrease risk like statins and aspirin. Um, and so that's probably how it will play out. But we want to prove that in this particular circumstance, if you have um, this premalignant state, that taking a statin would actually decrease the risk of a heart attack. So that's, this, that's kind of where we're going right now. So Ken, you look like you're about to ask a question. You're about to leave. Uh, but, but it's just stretching. Uh, so I'm going to... Finish? No, I'm not going to finish. So, uh, Marina, you're not allowed number two. Uh, <laughs> yes. I've got to do it right. What is your diet? <laughs> Mine? <laughs> well, you've got three kids. Yes, that's right. So I eat my... a fair amount of chasing. I chase my kids and I eat their candy for their own benefit. <laughs> 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 and then not enough, let me guess, not enough sleep. Not enough sleep. And an excess of air travel. Yeah, yeah so, yeah. <laughs> got on an airplane very early this morning. So. You don't do anything, though. With all your knowledge, there's nothing you say. Since yeah. uh, becoming Ben Guru, you, ha you haven't uh, changed too anything. Much. I, I mean, I find that... Um, you know, what you guys do, the, the, feed, the biofeedback yes. is quite powerful. There, I don't have a to biofeedback a for food. Like, so I, you know, I, I do, at the end of the day, run around, do a few extra steps because <laughs> I, I feel like I've been sitting around all day. If there was a thing for, if you work out a, a food biofeedback that okay. your you know, cholesterol is high that day because you ate a crappy diet, yeah. you know, maybe you'd say, mm, tomorrow I'm going to just eat or salad. Or just be a little bit better. Yeah. 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 So this is a question regarding uh, oxygen therapy for cancer treatment. So I recently uh, read where uh, oxygen uh, uh, between benign and uh, malignant uh, uh, cancer, the oxygen level at the tissue and at the cell level uh, decreases significantly in malignant as compared to benign. And so the question is, uh, obviously, that particular study did not, it is an empirical evidence, but not uh, to say that what uh, causes that. And that is true for aging as well, where uh, individuals uh, with uh, higher ages uh, have uh, lesser uh, oxygen level at the tissue level. So uh, have, have you looked at it and is it a valid uh, form of therapy for cancer treatment? It's a great question. So um, the the, so the, the oxygen in the blood doesn't change with age unless somebody has lung disease. Um, the oxygen in the tissues is largely dependent on the blood supply and the tiny vessels, the capillaries that go to uh, infiltrate the tissues. And that is guided by a process called angiogenesis. And that has been a big field of cancer research to see if a, a little tumor is not able to grow big unless it has a blood supply that goes into it. So that really fed a big area of cancer research. And the factors that cause angiogenesis were identified. Drugs that target them were identified. Some have been approved. The ultimate effect on cancer, unfortunately, was relatively modest. There wasn't an enormous effect of blocking blood vessel formation and starving tumors of mm. cancer. It was... Uh, so 10 or 15 years ago, that was an enormous hope. We thought that was going to be one of the big keys. And that didn't turn out so much uh, to be true. Um, the biology worked well. The, um, the, the, you could do what the drugs are supposed to do, block blood vessel formation. But 
cancers find a way. Find a way. They mutate so well. They modulate their metabolism to require, if they don't have oxygen, they use something else and make their energy some other way. So they're they're very wily, very difficult to um, treat in that way. The breakthrough that 10 or 15 years ago everybody thought was ridiculous was you could ever do something to the immune system to actually make that better at treating cancer because for decades everything that people had done to the immune system had completely failed. And now that's the hottest thing in the world and, and it is making a huge difference. So the angiogenesis peaked a little while ago, has gone down, and the immunotherapy was, uh, was considered a, a little field off in the, uh, not in the mainstream of cancer research, and is now is the, uh, the absolute focal point of new cancer research. The last one, right at the back. <laughs> then you can come and, uh, I've, Ben will spend a few minutes here. What time are you, oh, well, you're staying for dinner, so yeah. he's got until dinner time, frankly. I'm, yeah, just offering, that's right. I'm offering him up. So thank you very much for your lecture. Um, Marcus set me up for a really good question when he brought in the Finnish twins cohort study. I was wondering, actually, in terms of epigenetics, what kind of factors go into this research uh, on that front? We talked about genetic mutation, but I suspect since you said things were um, over the lifetime, cancers emerge over the lifetime of individuals, that the epigenome is going to make a big difference in that regard. Absolutely. So that's another enormous area of cancer research. It turns out that the three most commonly mutated genes in the uh, set that I described are all epigenetic regulators. And so uh, a large portion of the mutations that cause cancer alter the epigenome. And so epigenome, the epigenome is a way of turning genes on and off or changing the way cells respond to um, a stimulus. And so that clearly is really important. Why that's the case is, though, you know, huge prizes are given to this and tons of people work on it. It's not entirely clear why changes to the epigenome cause cancer. There are drugs that target epigenetic regulators uh, that are in clinical trials, some with efficacy. Um, uh, But exactly tying the mutations to um, specific changes in the epigenome that cause cancer and specific targets that, that make it better ton of work needs to be done, but that is also at a, clearly at the core of the problem right now. So it's a great question. Okay, we're going to stop there. We've got to do one more thing, haven't we, Ellen? You get a trophy. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> it's also a weapon. Uh, <laughs> so here we Look go. Look at that. Oh. This uh, is the Shannon Luminary Award, which you have done, <laughs> you richly deserve. So well done, Ben. Thank you very much. Wonderful job. Oh, we have to take a <laughs> It's quite weighty, isn't it? It is. It's very substantial. Thank you. So uh, Ben will spend a few minutes here, and then he's got to uh, go and do more important things with me. No, I'm just kidding. So uh, come and say hi to him, and thanks, and I'll see you in a little while. Okay, sounds good. For more information about the topics discussed today, please check our show notes. And if you like this episode of Future Human, consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to leave a review at Apple Podcasts. It does help people find the show. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was written and produced by me, Sandy Smolens, for audiation.fm. 
It was recorded and mixed at The Loft in Bronxville, New York by Matt Noble, who also composed the theme music with me. Additional production by Kelly Kramer. Audiation.